Hey, what's going on? It is at the letters for late into the night of Monday, August the 31st. Ben Nixon-Smith here bringing the Midnight Oil with me. I am Arden Zwelling. We, of course, have to talk about the 2020 trade deadline that passed at 4 p.m. Eastern here on Monday and uh, the very, very active one that the uh, the Toronto Blue Jays had. So thanks for coming along. I want to say thanks to our producers, uh, Mike Sony and Christian Ryan, for also being up late with us and, uh, and taking care of this bet. General thoughts, just overall, the Blue Jays make a, a bunch of moves, nothing too splashy, but more of a perhaps, this is kind of harsh maybe, but quantity over quality deadline for the Blue Jays. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, going into this, I kind of wondered if the 2016 deadline might be a precedent for the Jays. And, I, you know, I think ultimately they would have really wanted to add some players who could be controllable for a long time and you could join this core and in Ross Stripling arguably they might have one of those but in large part what we saw from this team was a pursuit of free agents to be guys like Taiwan Walker and Jonathan VR and Robbie Ray who are on the brink of free agency but who still can help this team and you know it does remind me of 16 in a sense because that year they acquired Jason Grilly and Joaquin Benoit and Francisco Liriano at the time all those guys were struggling they ERA is well above five and they were not having good years. And, you know, that's kind of reminiscent of what we're seeing right now because in Robbie Ray, they acquired the league leader in walks and in earned runs. And in Ross Stripling, they acquired the league leader in home runs. So, uh, you know, these are not guys who are having their best seasons. These are guys who have had really good seasons before and who might have really good seasons again. But uh, the Jays are hoping for a bounce back. Yeah, those are the categories you want to uh, lead the majors in but i think that it's interesting you bring up the 16 deadline because like the deadline that all blue jays fans will remember for the rest of their lives is the 15th deadline right where it was like david price and troy tulowitzki and like massive moves and trade all the prospects and like here we go and for better or for worse that deadline has kind of like colored baseball deadlines for a lot of fans in Toronto, you know what I mean? Where they kind of like measure everything against that deadline. And that deadline is never going to happen again, at least certainly not while Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins are running the Toronto Blue Jays. And it's like taken a long time for people to like kind of come around to the fact that this crew operates a lot differently and that you are never going to see that like, we're going all in, baby. Like send all the prospects out. (laughs) Like here we go. Like we are mortgaging the future. Like you're just never going to see that. It's never going to happen. Like this front office is just so much more measured and gradual and deliberate in how they team build. And you even hear Ross Atkins, you know, praising the Dodgers today on the the Zoom call that we had with them here tonight and, and how they've built their club and saying, look, they've never had a moment where they have like really overextended themselves through trade and they have always kept the long term in mind and they have always balanced the short term with the long term. That's what we're seeing here right now because the Blue Jays have this incredible opportunity where, like, I'll say it right now, they're going to be a playoff team. Like, they're going to the postseason. I, there is nobody else in the American League who is legitimately competing with them right now with a month left in the season. So you have this incredible opportunity in front of you, but they also have kind of put so much hay into the barn of building for the long term that I just think the approach is going to be a lot more measured and that, you know, for better or for worse, like Alex Anthopoulos' 2015 deadline really just, like, tinged things for a lot of people when, as you say, they should actually be looking at the 2016 deadline as, as more instructive of how this crew is going to operate. 
Totally. It's almost like whatever, you know, whatever GM ends up replacing AJ Preller in San Diego will never live up to the glory (laughs) of the 2020 trade deadline, right? Like Preller goes out and he acquires Mitch Moreland and Trevor Rosenthal and he just keeps adding these like bit players. And then he goes out and adds Mike Clevenger and a blockbuster nine player trade. Like you're never going to live up to that if you're the San Diego Padres. Preller is going to be, well, I mean, it depends on where things go from here, but he has a chance to be like, a living legend for for san diego's fans who are just like yeah like he he did it he he put this team together and you know i'm I'm just kind of spitballing there but i think that you're you're never going to win over a fan base as a gm if you go out there with the intention of trying to be measured trying to be deliberate trying to balance the short and long term it's just not necessarily as headline grabbing and certainly the moves that the jays made today i think they're a better team like that's the the most important thing is are they a better team and I think they are right now. So that's good. That's what you want to see if you're a contending team. But by no means was it as splashy as the Padres. No, and I, I think that the Blue Jays had opportunities to make those big splashy moves. And I think that if they were willing to not necessarily overextend themselves, but just you know trade some of their top prospects, like trade from that top tier, I think they could have been involved in a in Mike Clevenger discussions. I think they could have been involved for you know Lance Lynn if the the Rangers obviously didn't get what they were looking for for him. But I think that the Blue Jays could have shopped in that aisle if they were willing to spend that kind of dough. We just didn't see that here at this deadline. And I think that's pretty much what both of us sort of advocated for going into this was like, look, you've got a cool opportunity and like you're going to be in the postseason, but it's not like you're going to win the American League East here. And it's not like you're going to be one of the top teams. You're going to be like number eight, like maybe number seven. You know, that's still putting you in a position where you got to win two out of three on the road just to continue in the postseason. So there really isn't any need to spend any type of prospect capital above and beyond, you know, what the Blue Jays did. And that's why, like, it's hard to criticize this deadline because the Blue Jays really didn't give up that much, right? Like, unless you think Griffin Conine's going to be an all-star someday, and I don't know, maybe he will, right? But, like, the Blue Jays really didn't give up anyone where it's like, oh, wow, like, you know, that guy was somebody that you were really dreaming on. Like, they really traded from a, a tier of prospect in their system where they had surplus, where they were able to move on from guys and, and where I don't think that they're really going to regret anything that they did here. Yeah, that's right. I think it's a little tricky because with the players to be named, we don't know exactly who's going back. But it, let's say it's the caliber of Griffin Conine. Like, let's you know, as a reference point, if those are the types of prospects going to the Dodgers, the type of prospect going to the Mariners for Taiwan Walker, then you can live with that. You can part with that. That's the kind of depth that the Blue Jays have accumulated. And maybe some of those guys become big leaguers in the same way that Jacob Wagaspak became a big leaguer when the Blue Jays traded for him and sent Aaron Loop to Philly a couple of years ago. But I don't think the Jays are, are concerned that someone like a Griffin Conine is going to be a star. And by the way, perfect pickup for the Marlins. I mean, the, the son of Mr. Marlin, Jeff Conine, to go to Miami, that's great. I, I hope he makes it there. But if you have a 36% strikeout rate as a 21-year-old at low A, you're probably not streaking through the prospect charts. You know, you're, you're probably more of a fringy prospect. And I think there's even a benefit to having some of the conversations that the Blue Jays had in terms of big deals that didn't get done that carries forward for the offseason, right? Because you do kind of get a sense of, oh, okay, that's how that organization sort of, uh, you know, values these prospects that we have. Like, that's how they feel about these guys. Or, you know, that's what the price tag might be on this guy. Like, I think that there is an information accumulation at a time like this where there's all these conversations are going on and, you know, there's a lot more activity and a lot more phone calls and texts being sent where, you know, you do learn stuff that, you know, you hope you can leverage 
in the offseason. Like if the Blue Jays want to make another impact acquisition like 100 Ryu this offseason, stay on the starting pitcher front and they, you know, the swing and a miss on Trevor Bauer and then whoever else doesn't want to come to Toronto, then yeah, you could like revisit some of those talks or at least have a better idea of where the market stands for certain guys but just as it pertains to this deadline in this moment in time right now like if you are not going to be paying those top prices and you're like not going to be going for like your clevengers of this world then you have to look for interesting buy lows right and you have to look for like interesting um like i hate like saying like reclamation projects but like you know guys who you are hoping are going to bounce back like guys who have track records like who have performed well earlier in their careers and have shown you something at the big league level but it's not working for them right now. The team that's moved them obviously is motivated to move them for a reason. Like whether you're walking too many guys, your delivery is all out of whack or whatever it is. So you have to find interesting guys like that who have traits that you can bet on, whether it's a ton of spin on your fastball or whether it's, you know, a curve, you know, great strikeout numbers like you're going to see with Robbie Gray. Like there's things here that, that you'll bet on and guys that have demonstrated in their careers that they have really great potential but you are right now like buying them at a, a rather low point in their career and hoping, especially in this season with only a month left, that they can make some like very, very quick improvements. Yeah, that's right. And you really are buying traits and trends more so than you're buying, obviously, the stats that are on the back of their baseball card because those stats are already in the books. What you need is players who are going to produce going forward. And I think, you know, in Ross Stripling, you have someone whose secondary stuff really appeals to the Blue Jays. That's interesting. He has a long track record of being a very good kind of swing uh, starter slash reliever for the Dodgers. He's, he's done both roles, and it's kind of unclear exactly how the Jays are going to use these guys, but it gives them versatility. It gives them options, and Stripling's velocity is up this year, so that's, that's a good sign. And in Ray, they have someone whose velocity has stayed strong as well, but he was messing around with his delivery going into the season in the hopes of limiting some walks, but it actually totally backfired. He lost his command almost entirely. I mean, his walks are just out of control right now. But I was talking to a scout earlier today, right after the Jays made that move, and the person was saying that Ray seems to have kind of reverted back toward the delivery that allowed him to succeed from 2015 to 19. And even in this afternoon, I was looking at some clips, and you can kind of see he's not short-arming the ball quite so much. He is going back to that longer arm stroke. And, and Ross Atkins, when he was talking to us, identified that as a, a trend in the positive direction for the Jays. So making that kind of adjustment on the fly in the middle of a season is not an easy thing to do. There is no guarantee that Robbie Ray can do that now. Maybe it ends up being a team that signs him to a one-year deal next year and ramps him up in a full seven-week spring training. That might be the team that benefits from the bounce back. But the Jays are hoping it can happen now. And again, the acquisition cost to get him is low. And it should also be said, who is he replacing on this pitching staff? I mean, on the 40-man roster, he's replacing Travis Bergen. On the active roster, you know, is it Sam Gaviglio? Who, who knows exactly who he replaces? But the Jays have arms on this pitching staff that they could upgrade over. And so to add Robbie Ray, to add Ross Stripling, those guys are better than what the Jays had before. And that's really at a baseline level. I mean, that's, that's the direction you want to be going in is adding players who can help you more than the guys you already had. And that's going to be the really kind of interesting thing to watch is how the Blue Jays work with these guys and what kind of adjustments they get them to make. Because the, like, I think the Blue Jays like philosophy, generally speaking, is you know when a guy comes into the organization, like 
figure out what works for him and what he likes to do and let him try some stuff on his own and let him kind of bring whatever he's working on. Cause like, look, all these players really invested in their careers. Like they know if, you know, they're short arming the ball and it's not working or their you know, deliveries or their mechanics are all out of whack. Like they're not only hearing it from, you know, the pitching coaches and whichever organization they're coming from, they're hearing it from their friends. Right. And people who they grew up with, people who they played with, like their old pitching coach from high school is sending them texts. Like, have you noticed your front foot? So I think the Blue Jays don't like to overload a new player coming into the organization with information and to try to be like, oh, you're here now. Okay, now you're going to do this, that, and the other thing because this is what we do here and this is what you're going to do. I think they like to let them come in and find their feet. Like think about Shun Yamaguchi, right, who brought him in the organization from Japan. They're like, okay, what do you like to do? What's worked for you in the past? Do that. He did in the MLB. Did not go very well. (laughs) Went pretty poorly. And that's when the Blue Jays are like, okay, let's maybe use this pitch more than that pitch. And in this situation, we want to attack this quadrant of the zone. And like, here are some things we want you to change in MLB. And suddenly, Shun Yamaguchi's had more success. But that process takes time, right? And you've got a month left in this season. And then it's go time. Like, it's playoff time, baby. And it is like win or go home. And you're effective and you're in the game or you're not and you're not in a game. That will be the interesting thing for me to watch with guys like Ray and Stripling with just can they turn around fast enough and you know when do the Blue Jays start coming to them with some suggestions and some adjustments that they think that they can make and just how do you kind of bridge that gap and massage that situation because you know clearly a couple projects here and you know the the potential is obvious but not a whole lot of time to to get things fixed up. Yeah, that's right. And it leads to an interesting question of how the Jays kind of integrate them into their pitching staff. I mean, if you've got a guy in Robbie Ray who's walking that many hitters, I know the Jays have an opening in their starting rotation, but if it was me, I might be tempted to roll with Stripling in that spot and, and use Ray out of the bullpen and low leverage to begin with. I mean, I know that you have to deal with the human side of things, and that might be a tough message for a guy who's about to be a free agent. Um, whereas where Stripling, who's uh, a Blue Jay in theory, at least through 2022, it's a bit of a longer term relationship. So a couple, couple factors there. But, you know, I don't know, I guess do you take a look at him in a bullpen. What would you do? I mean, would you put Robbie Ray into that rotation right away? It's just a, it's a tricky thing, especially at a time that, you know, the Merriweather Yamaguchi combination, like it's not bad. It, you could definitely do worse than that as the number five spot. Yeah, the Meriwether Yamaguchi Gambit. That's right. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, I, I wouldn't throw either guy into the rotation just now or unless they were like, oh, I don't know, it'll depend how things line up, right? Like, we'll we'll see going forward where guys are at. Where's Matt Shoemaker at when he comes back? You know, where is Nate Pearson at when he comes back? And those guys are, you know, a, a ways off. But, you know, how soon those guys are returning, how soon Ken Giles is returning, like all that stuff kind of informs these decisions maybe after the break i can kind of make my pitch to you about how i think the toronto blue jays are going to be the milwaukee brewers of this postseason all right uh, and going forward and how i think they're going to deploy their their pitching staff a, a bit differently but that also gets down to when you bring a player into organization like you don't want to thrust too much on them too soon be like hey you're starting tomorrow <laughs> like off you go <laughs> good luck right i don't know man We're, look taiwan walker came in and, and got a start under his belt right away and it went great for him right like he had a quite a fine outing and he looked like really motivated on the mound and like he wanted to make a good impression and then he did but then the flip side of that is that if it doesn't go well and your first impression is like really poor and then it's like okay now we're taking you out of the rotation and that's like another hit to the you know to the confidence a little bit that's another thing that's just kind of like it's delicate how you introduce guys right into a team and and what you give them right away it gets back to Yamaguchi again 
his first two outings in MLB are like 10th inning with a runner on second, right? Like those are his entry points to his first two outings. So, right, like you want to be sort of cautious with it, particularly with guys who clearly have been struggling this year and know that they've been struggling this year. Like they know these stats that you're citing, Ben, of, yep, I lead MLB and walks per nine. Yep, most home runs per nine. Like that's me. These guys are very aware of it. So that's another thing that like I'm going to be very interested just to see how the Blue Jays kind of find entry points for them as they join this roster. For sure. And, you know, it's interesting, too, you mentioned some of those some of those near deals for starting pitchers or the discussions that the Blue Jays had. And Ross Atkins mentioned that there were a couple of deals that almost came together at the deadline for the Blue Jays. And he mentioned a bigger deal that they were in on before kind of saying that this wasn't the right time. They didn't want to give up so much of their future. wonder if that one was Clevenger. And I wonder if the, you know, smaller deals that uh, nearly came together this afternoon right at the buzzer I wonder if those are for pitching as well just because you know you look at this bullpen and I'm not going to get into the whole you know Chase Anderson Wilmer Font discussion and and the details of the pitching usage in Monday's game but I think it's it's clear that there's room if you have a 28 man roster like you've you've got so much space for pitchers and so much space to to carry guys who are effective and you know that, that injuries come up. I mean, it's unfortunate to see Jordan Romano and Ken Giles and Matt Shoemaker and Nate Pearson all go down. But in the next month, there are probably going to be more guys who go down. And this was the last chance to add any kind of reinforcements. So even if Stripling, Ray, even if they're not having good seasons, they're major league pitchers, the bulk helps at a certain point for this team. You won't get into the Anderson and Font discussion, but I will uh, when we come back after the break here on At The Letters. And a ground ball into left field, a base hit. One run is home. Here comes Grichik. And the Blue Jays win it. They walk it off again as Teoscar Hernandez delivers in the bottom of the ninth. And the Blue Jays take it six to five. Okay, Ben. So the Blue Jays drop a game on Monday to the Baltimore Orioles. They actually win three out of four in that series. I mean, they've been winning a whole bunch lately. Like they are running like the inside. They are on the inside track of the AL race to the playoffs with everybody else like way the hell back there and right. like jogging <laughs> it's, and it's the tigers and the right. orioles by yeah. the way too so i mean I, I, it, yeah it's it's you know looking I mean? good it's, it's the guy good. who qualified for this race on a technicality and it's like the guys who you thought you were contending with in this race like boston and like the angels are like you know they pulled hamstrings or something right like yeah. it is you know the Blue Jays are competing with themselves for a playoff yep. spot right now. Like the only they themselves can uh, stop themselves from qualifying for the postseason, in my opinion. I would say that in Monday's game, um, they just did not score enough runs against like a bottom half pitching staff in the Baltimore Orioles. He scored, you know, four three right. So he scored three runs against the Orioles. You got to score more than that. But a lot of people in that game will point to the fact that Chase Anderson comes out after five innings at a point that he was rolling he was at like 84 pitches he'd retired his last 12 in a row 
eight strikeouts on the day, like a bunch of swinging strikes. Like he legitimately had the best stuff I've seen him have all year. Like he looked like he was, you know, as peak form as, as he's going to be in. It comes out after five at 84 pitches and he's just about to start his third trip through the order. He has completed full two full trips to the order about to start his third trip. Wilmer Font comes in and then it's like swing, swing, swing and the game's tied. And a lot of people are going to point to that and they're going to tie to that the fact that Blue Jays starters haven't gotten particularly deep into games this year. We haven't seen a lot of, you know, six, seven inning outings from Blue Jays starters this year. Dare I say an eight inning outing or a complete game, which I just don't think you're going to see at all. And I just don't think you're going to see Blue Jays pitchers outside of Hunjin Ryu, who is kind of like, you know, in a category of his own because, like you know, runner up for a Cy Young Award and legit ace dude. Outside of him, I'm just not sure you're going to see a Tanner Roark or a Chase Anderson or, uh, you know, a Taiwan Walker or, you know, if Robbie Ray or Ross Stripling step in the rotation, whoever it is, you're not going to see a third time through the order. This year, the numbers against pitchers the third time through are actually even worse than they have been, right? Like pitchers do even worse this year, the third time through than they have in the prior two seasons. They're not going to give me a Sabre award because I'm like, oh, like pitchers get hit hard like in the, you know, the third time through the order. Everyone knows this, but it's even more pronounced this year. And then you look at the fact that the Blue Jays have like an 11-man bullpen. And the majority of the guys in that bullpen Thomas Hatch, Julian Merriweather, Anthony Kay, Ryan Barucki, Shuni Amaguchi, Jacob Wagasback, Sean Reed Foley, I, you know, Jordan Romano when he's healthy. These are all guys who were starting like last year. Jordan Romano is the only guy in there who wasn't a starter last season. So these are all guys who can give you length, who can pitch multiple innings for you. I just think that the way that the Blue Jays roster is composed and constructed, you're not going to see that like five-man rotation of dudes who go six and seven innings and then you turn it over to like one-inning stints. I think the Blue Jays are going to be the Milwaukee Brewers going forward. Outside of Hunjin Ryu, I think you're going to see a lot more creative pitcher usage we already sort of have. You know, I, I think you'll see like situations where it's, yeah, it's Chase Anderson for four or five and then it's Brucky for two and then... Maybe it's Stripling for one and then Giles for one or whatever. Or like maybe it's going to be when Matt Shoemaker comes back from his shoulder thing. Maybe it's Matt Shoemaker for three innings and then it's Ryan Brookie for two. Or it's like Thomas Hatch for two. And then maybe it's Anthony Kay for two. And then, you know, Merriweather for one. Maybe it's Merriweather starts the game and throws an inning or two and then gives away to a Yamaguchi bulk outing or a Wagusback bulk outing or, or what have you probably a lefty coming after him. I don't know, a Rocky bulk outing, maybe Robbie Ray, right? Like, I just don't think that the fact that Blue Jays aren't getting six, seven, eight inning outings from their starters is a flaw. Like, I think it's kind of the feature that. Yeah, it's just, it's just the way pitching works. And I, I think anyone holding their breath for a seven, eight inning outing, like exhale, it's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not the way the game works right now. If you want to see that, and I love watching that, and we see that on occasion from certain starting pitchers, and you know, maybe Garrett Cole will do that this postseason, for example. But, you know, really, if you want to see that, there's some great videos on YouTube of the 1991 World Series, and the 1992 World Series, and, you know, you can go and watch the vintage games, but that's just not the way it's played now. And so if you're going to be a staff like the Toronto Blue Jays that has one frontline starter and a, a bunch of guys who are back-end starters or, or middle-of-the-rotation starters, or, or maybe in Pearson's case, a prospect who's still trying to prove himself and coming back from injury, then you're just not going to see that. And so, you know, 
I understand there are going to be moments where a pitcher is removed, like, quote unquote, too soon. But the alternative is you see a manager who sticks with guys for too long. And then you see these pitchers get exposed as they're facing hitters over and over. So you could also even make the case that this year, when you're playing, you know, just within your division, you're not, it's not like you're playing the Padres for three games, then you're out of there and you don't see them again. You're playing the same teams over and over. And that leads to even more familiarity with the batters and, and your pitching staff. So you don't want to give these guys chances. The Baltimore Orioles in the game that you're talking about, Arden, you're, you're looking at a team that has played the Blue Jays a lot recently. And they're a team that was in the fourth game of a series. Like they're, they're very familiar with that staff. I mean, obviously Anderson didn't pitch until game four. But I think you want to give them different looks. As a manager, you don't want to just let them get comfortable. You want to keep things varied. And that's absolutely the way the game is going. It was literally Sunday, Ben. The Tanner Roar came out for a sixth inning, you know, facing the order the, the third time through. And it was like Nunez double, someone hit a single, and then Mountcastle hit one a mile. And like, boom, right? And that yeah. game like turned on a dime and right. Tanner Roark was rolling, right? He was cruising. Like, that's how fast it can happen. Like, the numbers bear it out. The strategy is obvious. And the Blue Jays have the type of pitching staff to do it with all these converted starters in the bullpen and they're adding more guys to this pitching staff now that I think can fit in those roles. You look at a guy like Robbie Ray has really struggled with his command, like, you know, a lot of walks, but elite strikeout numbers. So if you get two to three innings where he's in the zone or where he's making guys chase, like there's plenty of guys who don't throw the ball in the zone a ton, but their stuff is good enough that they make guys chase. Like you look at Shane Bieber, like he's not, you know, necessarily always pounding the zone. Like he's around the edges of the zone, but he gets swing and miss because the stuff is electric. If you can just get that swing and miss and strike out a bunch of dudes, Robbie Ray's useful coming out of the bullpen in a two inning stint. Ross Stripling, same thing. You know, a guy who also is, he's actually done that in his career for the Dodgers and has been a swing man for them. He's another guy who's going to fit well on this pitching staff where you're kind of piecing together bulk outings from guys. Like when Shoemaker and Pearson come back, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, whatever that is, they're both throwing off flat ground right now. They're not off a mound yet, but it's not like you're going to be building these guys back up for full starters workloads. Like they're, they're not going to be there. So, you know, the, these are also going to be guys who are going to factor in to kind of shorter bulk outing, if that even makes sense, right? Like just longer relief outings. And I think that the Blue Jays will get to a point Definitely in the playoffs, maybe even before that, where they are just kind of looking at the opposition lineup and saying like, okay, like who matches up best, right? And and you're kind of charting it out before the game. And you're saying like, all right, so like the top of the Yankees order goes like this, one through six. So like, let's, you know, Julian Merriweather matches up really well with those guys. Let's throw him out there for, you know, and then at seven through nine, we see hitters who are like this. And you know what, Robbie Ray would make a lot of sense there. And then we'll let him, you know, take the, the top of the order again and see how that goes. And then we'll have a couple different avenues. We can go to Hatch or we can go to Cole or whatever, right? Like, I just think that you'll see the, the Blue Jays just being a, a lot more fluid in how they are able to approach throwing their pitchers at opposition lineups. As you said, it's something we've seen in the playoffs. It's something I think we're definitely going to see in the playoffs from the Blue Jays. I, I wonder if we don't see it down the stretch from them a, a little bit as well as they kind of prepare this pitching staff for what's going to be asked of them in the postseason. And I think the Blue Jays just really have the roster construction to pull it off. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they had gone out and acquired Leonard Clevenger, you're starting that guy. He's yeah. going six or seven. He is that pitcher. It's not who they acquired. And so that will inform the way that they use that staff. And I, I agree with you. I think for a couple of reasons, you want to make sure that you're you're doing that strategy. One, it just helps you win the game at hand. And then two, like you said, it gets them ready for that challenge. It, you're not surprising anybody that way. So I like that line of thinking. I think that's what they're going to do. And it's, you know, it's it's interesting with guys like Pearson and Shoemaker, right? And you mentioned them and their kind of return to play. But man, I mean, I think Nate Pearson, probably his next or, or the the most innings that I would anticipate him throwing this year is two or three. You know, from this point on, like I think the days of him trying to, the days in 2020 of yeah. him, you know, trying to trying to go out there and extend. I just, I don't think he has the ramp up. And I think honestly, like it, it, with this small amount of time, you don't even want to push him. Like you don't want to go too crazy there. With Shoemaker, it's arguably a little different just because he's older. He's a veteran on the brink of free agency. I guarantee that he is pushing them to allow to be stretched out and to, and to go four or five innings. So maybe that's a little bit of a different discussion. But I think with Pearson, if he's going two or three, that's probably about all you're looking for from him. And if that allows the stuff to play up, and all of a sudden, like Pearson's like sitting 99 instead of just, you know, touching 99 every once in a while. And if you know, that allows him to pitch with that much more conviction and to know that he's coming in for just, you know, one trip through the lineup, maybe, right? Like maybe even just like six or seven hitters and just really attack, and go all out and not have to like think about how he's going to turn a lineup over and attack guys multiple times and just be like, yeah, I, here it is. I'm going to air it out and let it eat. Like we saw you know, right at the beginning of the Aaron Sanchez tenure in Toronto, just like how like effective that can be when you just kind of simplify things, come out of the bullpen with devastating stuff. Obviously, in 2021, Nate Pearson returns to being a starter and trying to be a workhorse at, at the front of rotation. But it's 2020, and you know, as we sit here right now, like there's not that many games left in the season. There's you know, there's not that many kind of quote unquote developmental opportunities left in the season. It's like, hey, it's time to go. Like it's time to win. It's time to win games, and it's time to you know just think about how to. To maximize this roster in order to be successful in the postseason maybe surprise some people in 2020 because the blue jays as we mentioned just have this like gift of an opportunity in the american league race oh it's an incredible it's an incredible opportunity it really is like you you talk about hey what if this happens and what if the jays you know they have some breakouts and what if their pitching is better than we think and what if the red sox and angels don't really compete like all of that stuff has happened not to say it's been a perfect season they faced adversity too on many levels like they didn't have a home park they still barely do they're playing in a minor league park no question the jays have faced adversity and overcome it in a lot of cases and that's what makes it a really good story so it will be fun to watch i think watching pearson throw 99 100 would be would be pretty exciting it's interesting like in the course of his first handful of major league starts one thing that i noticed and i'm sure a lot of people listening noticed as well was it would take him a while to kind of settle in and so i wonder if as the Blue Jays are mapping out his role going forward, I wonder if that's a factor at all, you know, behind the scenes where it's like, you know, he never just seemed to get super comfortable in the first inning was my impression watching. And then he would settle in. He'd be really effective for a few innings after that. So I wonder if that's a variable at all, just something to keep an eye on. But either way, if you're throwing 99, hundred with that slider, I mean, he'll be fine. We have short shrifted uh, Jonathan VR here in this podcast. We must mention him because the Blue Jays also acquired him at the deadline here. Pretty obvious that he steps into Bo Bichette's role at, at shortstop for the time being. You know, Bichette actually kind of, you know, some pretty encouraging signs towards his return this week in terms of sprinting and, you know, hitting and fielding grounders. Like it sounds like he's kind of turned a corner 
a little bit, but you know, Jonathan VR plays shortstop until Bo's ready to go again. And then obviously that's your shortstop at that point. So then what happens to VR in your mind? How does he fit in once Bichette is back? And what does that mean for a guy like a Joe Panic or a, a Brandon Drury? Jonathan VR waiting on it. Puts it high in the air, deep to right field. Judge going back, looking. Goodbye, home run! And VR is now a single shy of the cycle. My goodness, what a swing by Jonathan VR. The playmaker today for sure. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, panic, I presume we'll see a reduction in playing time. Drury, we've already seen options. So I think with the infield mix, VR is someone who gives you a lot of versatility. And I think that's a great thing for this team because you can also play in the outfield. So Charlie Montoyo made the point in discussing VR and what he brings that he almost reminds him of Abigio as far as the versatility, as far as the, the flexibility that he gives a manager. And I've got to think as a manager, that's a great thing for Charlie Montoyo to be working with. And to have another guy who can play up the middle at different positions, second base, shortstop, center field. I totally agree that he'll likely slot in as the shortstop for a little bit. And then after that, I think he goes to some combination of second base, left field, center field. I don't know that they necessarily DH him, maybe a little bit of third base, but I think it's whatever the team needs at that point. And you don't have to worry about being consistent with him. You just do whatever you need on that day. Yeah, you know, and this year already he's played center, he's played second, he's played short. So you can obviously move him around a lot. And, you know, the Blue Jays really value that versatility, obviously. Like, I wonder if him and Joe Panic are a little redundant both on this roster. And, like, we, we don't know yet what type of corresponding moves are being made, but the Blue Jays need 40-man spots. They certainly need two, right? So Bergen comes off. So you got VR, Ray, and Stripling all coming in. Yeah. So you're going to need two 40-man spots at least. So, you know, you can kind of trim from guys who aren't on the 25-man roster right now. Excuse me, the 28-man roster, I should say. Or I do wonder if they look at a guy like Joe Panic, who just hasn't had the type of year that, that the Blue Jays thought he was going to have offensively or defensively. Like, I, you know, I think he's been great in the room. And I think they love, you know, the way he's been around young players on this club. And, you know, it's... I, I think there's probably still something something in there for him as a big leaguer at some point, but like the Blue Jays just probably aren't going to have the playing time to give him you know, coming up over the next month or the runway to give him. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. Like you said, Brand Drury, we've already seen optioned off the roster. I mean, as long as VR is here, you don't really need a Drury here either. Like John and VR can just kind of fit in, in in all those different places. And like he's not having the offensive year that I'm sure he would have liked to. You know, the stat cast numbers this season are like pretty unimpressive. And you know, you look at he's not hitting the ball particularly hard. Looks like he's having a lot of trouble with breaking balls. But you know, last season it was like a, a 109 OPS plus, you know, and I'm pretty sure Jonathan VR would have like led the Blue Jays in a bunch of offensive categories last year <laughs> if he was on this team, yeah. you know, it's kind of pull to pull. So you know, I, I think you want to give him a little bit of run to see if he can kind of recapture that. You know, it brings an interesting speed element as well that, you know, the, the Blue Jays, they run a bit, they run here and there, and it'll be interesting to see how much of a green light they give him. Looks like he likes to run. Uh, he's been caught a bunch of times this year because his, like, his sprint speed's been down a little bit, interestingly. So it's another guy who I'm just like really kind of interested to see like how things go with him. It looks like certainly at the beginning here, he's going to have some playing time and he's going to have some rope. And then I think based on the results and the productivity there, that'll go a long way to dictating just, you know, how much of a role he plays once Bo Bichette's healthy. I think he'll mostly be an everyday guy, even when Bichette comes back. I think when you look at a team that's given so many plate appearances to guys like Panic and Drury, I think there's there's room for a guy like VR who provides you so many different things. And 
I, I'm interested to watch him on an everyday basis. Obviously, over the years, we've seen him with Baltimore and, and you know, seen a bunch of him. I'm sure that a lot of people listening have as well. But in talking to some people about VR, you kind of get the sense that he's someone who can be frustrating in some ways as much as he's super talented. And I, first of all, I just want to give the guy credit. He played in 162 games last year, four wins above replacement, like really, really good season. He stole 62 bases one year. Like there's a lot of talent here. And everyone that I've ever you know spoken to about VR just reiterates he's an extremely talented player. But then one person described him as being just really annoying. And I wasn't sure if that was like a compliment, like, hey, he's really pesky. Or, you know, kind of like a little bit of an insult or kind of a bit of both. Annoying to have on your team or annoying to play against? Annoying to play against. Annoying to play against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not not to have on your team. This is a former opponent. And it's just like, it's interesting because some guys are universally beloved, right? And you're never going to hear anyone criticize them. And that's great. And that's fine. And then in other cases, you'll have examples of players who are just, they kind of at times can rub the opposition the wrong way. Maybe because they're good. Maybe because of the way they carry themselves, whatever the case. But I'm intrigued to see VR. I think he's, he's going to be fun. He brings something different to this team. It's a different skill set. I'm very uh, excited to watch what he brings. Do the Blue Jays have like any players who are clearly extremely talented, but then can also do some like bafflingly frustrating things? Does that sound familiar? Sure. I've watched a lot. And I don't want to pick on Teoscar Hernandez because Te- Teoscar Hernandez has been so good yeah. this year. And we're talking walk-off wins. That throw to the plate in Monday's game was spot on. Perfect throw. Hernandez now coming in. Still coming in. Here comes the runner. Here comes the throw. He got him. What a throw by Teoscar Hernandez. So let's give Teoscar Hernandez some credit. But there have been times in the last couple of seasons where he would fit that mold for sure. Yeah, throw Lourdes Gurriel Jr. in there, right? Like this guy who like he gets his bat to every part of the strike zone and like the ball just explodes off of it as soon as he makes contact, but who also like, you know, maybe tries to push things a little too much on the base pass sometimes, or, right? Or even Randall Gritchuk, right? I mean, he's someone who until this year, you look at him and you're like, hey, he's got all this power. He's a fast, you know, fast runner. He should be a good defender. And yet he's chasing these sliders off the plate. You know, Kevin Pillar used to chase those sliders off the plate. So it's all kinds of players can be very frustrating. And certainly VR might be in that category. It's funny when you think about it, like you could put essentially every player in that category, like outside of like your kind of like Trout Lindor (laughs) level of players, like probably the majority of players in MLB you could like, you could describe as, yeah, very talented, like has potential, but also really frustrating sometimes. Totally. I think like it's rare to have an exception to that. Really, it's rare. I think to me, Kevin Biggio is an exception to that. He just does so many things well that he's, he's an exception, but that is, that is rare. Plenty of potential, but super frustrating. I can relate to that. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith. <laughs> I'm Arden Zwelling. I want to thank our uh, producers, Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni, for being along with us. We're going to talk to you all next week on At The Letters. The Letters.